You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That's me. Today is the start of March Madness, so we are not really going to talk about March Madness, but we are going to talk about sports and sports media and money. Before we go any further, I know that for some of you, because you actually tell me this, sports is not something you want to pay attention to. You tune out if I talk about it. But I pay attention to sports media and talking about it on the show for a couple reasons. The main one is that sports is central to the media economy, both the old one and the new one we're building around us. I think the way sports media intersects with culture and reacts to it and creates culture is fascinating. And frankly, there's just a lot of dynamic and fascinating characters in that world, and I want to have those folks on this show as many times as I can. Relatedly, some of those people are in the middle of this ongoing experiment we're conducting about what happens when someone who becomes really well-known, you might even say they become a brand at a big company, leaves that company, and what happens to their ability to speak to their audience and to make a living. And that's something I talked about with two of my guests today. First up is Dan Lebetard who is one of ESPN's biggest stars and has now launched his own media company, Meadowlark Media, with his former ESPN CEO, John Skipper. He's taking his old radio and TV show to podcasts and trying to build a business around that. And I also talked to Grant Wall, who used to be Sports Illustrated soccer columnist and is now substacking on his own, seems to be working for him. But the main reason I wanted to talk to Grant was because it's a really fascinating story unfolding in London right now. It surrounds a Russian oligarch the world-famous soccer team he currently owns, how the British government has stepped in to essentially manage and eventually sell that team, all as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. If all of that is news to you, then I'm glad to be of service so I can tell you about this story myself with the help of Grant. First up, my chat with Dan Lebetard. Dan Lebetard was a star at ESPN for many, many years. Dan and ESPN broke up at the end of 2020. And now he is out on his own, sort of. He's got his own startup. We want to talk about all of that. Welcome, Dan Levitard. Thank you, sir. Looking forward to your questions. I've been told that you are a diligent, incisive uh, question asker. You mean, do I use Google before I do an interview? Yes, that's me. I've, I've heard that you ask, you're willing to ask the difficult questions, that I better be prepared uh, because if... Uh, if I'm not prepared for a question from yours, I might uh, stumble, fall down, and cause myself an international controversy. I think you're going to handle this just fine. I saw you for a minute in Austin at South by Southwest this weekend. Um, you guys have not been up and running that long um, under this this new company, Meadowlark. Um, but it looks like you had your sea legs. It was a big onstage production. Folks were coming to see you, even though it wasn't easy for them to get there. Um, how's it going? 
Thank you for coming by. And you were coming by at what is a bit of a symbolic breakthrough for us, where some of the things that we have had to crawl through some sewage and sludge to get to are now happening because I am not a businessman. I do not know what it takes to do a startup. Uh, I took a big bite here and invited all my friends and family and people who care about me and love me to come help me build a business because that's not the side of my brain that I use. I'm not a conqueror. I don't care very much about money. I care about just being free to create stuff with people I love and fill it with laughter. And so I want everyone else to figure out the monetization of it. All I want to do is just enjoy myself with what remains of my career. Well, I am going to ask about monetization, but I think you're going to get through it. But when you say that it's a symbolic moment, is, is that the fact that you are at the stage now where you can do a live show away from your home base in Miami? Is there something else beyond oh, that? There, there's a lot of stuff, right? We were at ESPN and one time, right, in the new digital age of podcasts can travel. And this is an intimate, intimate space. The, the connection that you have to people that is different than television, radio, newspaper, anything I've ever done is that you exist inside the head of a new era of entertainment where people can choose it when they want and they're taking you on their bike rides or if they have miserable jobs. And if you're providing the laughter in the head, the connection, the intimacy of that is something that is so deep that you saw what you did at South by Southwest. That's a creative hub, a center. And all I did was go from uh, panel to conference and saw a whole lot of starched stuff that didn't seem to me vibrant with creation. You saw what was happening at our place where no, they made it very difficult for our audience to get out there and yet they made it loud and loyal and brown and then all of a sudden uh the four seasons comes over and wants to disperse a crowd because it's too big a crowd oh i i missed that part did they oh, try to break up well, the party well, yes yes they tried to break up the party because this is the you know this i don't know what they expected but it wasn't whatever uh -huh. it is that we were doing but and this is this is where creative and commerce and corporate will meet you rest assured that the next day the Four Seasons was out there selling $14 beers to gouge our fans <laughs> because that crowd they tried to disperse was still there. Like they, so they figured it out pretty quick how to, uh, how to monetize it because, oh, they're having fun? Okay, let's give them some beers so they can have some more fun. Some ridiculously priced beer at that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it is Austin. It's South by Southwest. Nothing is that cheap. I do want to talk about your departure from ESPN, but I want to start with the, the thing you're doing now. You said you're not a you're not a, a business guy, you're, but you are a business guy. You have co-founded a company with John Skipper, your old boss at ESPN. Talk just through the basics of, of what Meadowlark is now and what you'd like it to be down the road. Well, what it aspires to be, listen to this foolhardy, uh, this fool's quest, what I aspire to build as someone who is the son of Cuban exiles and believes in freedom foremost at a time where people in America are having a whole lot of arguments about what defines freedom. I am trying to build a company with a soul that rewards all of these family members and friends who work with us. And I've always been told, don't work with your friends and family. And it's all I've ever done is work with my friends and family. I am trying to get us all 
toward the jobs that we dreamed about having. And when I say all of us, I mean all of us. Our CEO is John Skipper. He's handling the business of this. He was, for a period of time, the most powerful man in sports, and he made more money for ESPN and Disney than anyone in that position has ever made by leaps and bounds. It's his job to figure out how to do that, but that's a dream job for him to empower someone that he loves, someone who is his friend, someone who never wanted to work for Disney and went to Disney to work for John Skipper because I didn't want to work for a corporation and someone who was placed in the position for John Skipper to empower minorities, to make ESPN a broader, wider company that could have a little bit of that brown Miami as he put outposts in Washington and Los Angeles and New York to see if he can make it bigger than a Bristol culture. Um, my job was to take the privilege that he handed down to me and empower minorities. And our brown spaceship now flies on that on that fuel. A little bit different, I believe, than anything in this space has ever been in terms of audience loyalty that people understand what we are, the people that ride with us are discerning enough to be, I believe, the most loyal and unusual audience in the history of a medium that for a long time has been, let's go out to Joe on a mobile and find out what he thinks about the Mets. They expect better from us. They expect us to be different. They expect us to have a higher standard, and we aspire to meet it. So in practical terms, I think what that means is you're taking the show that you were doing at ESPN, you sort of ported it over into podcasts, and then, and you're sort of the flagship of the company, but the aspiration is you're going to do a lot more stuff. John wants to sell uh, movies and documentaries and all kinds of other content to all people who are distributing content, paying for it. Are you going to get involved in that stuff, or are you just going to stick with your show and what you know how to do? We're the hood ornament on the beginning of this. We are the coal that gets thrown in the furnace at the beginning. But yes, we're going to do all kinds of storytelling. We know how to make content and there is a demand in the content golden age for that stuff. So yes, we're going to do all of that stuff. Scripted, unscripted. Uh, we are free agents. We're free. The nature of our deal, and I don't believe, Peter, that anyone understands the nature of our deal. The sports media has done a remarkably shitty job of missing what's happening with uh, with the gambling money and with the golden age of content and what we can do by not being exclusive to anybody and having a partner in DraftKings that really is what you want from the soul of a sponsorship. They are here to make sure that we get funded on freedom to build what it is that we want because we're the content makers and they want content. And so they're really supporting the vision of what it is that we're doing. Let's talk about DraftKings and what they're doing. So they they announced, I guess, about a year ago, they were funding you. The journal put it at $50 million for for three years. So what are they getting for their fifty reported $50 million? What are you giving them? What are they doing with it? You'd have to ask them. They have big plans, and I'm not going to, like, they, I'm not going to release what their plans are. They will do that on their time. But they... They have large ambitions for what it uh, can all be. And it sort of began mm -hmm. with what you saw at South by Southwest. Right before that, we did a musical, right? This is a ridiculous thing. We've got a, a, we've got a chart, a billboard charting musical as, a, as ostensibly a sports radio show. Yeah. Uh, we've got something that it's a, it's a comedy album and a musical album that for one day beat Encanto. They, we beat Lin-Manuel Miranda. We took some pride from... Disney didn't develop 
Lin-Manuel Miranda, they were the mercenaries who purchased his next effort. And for one shining day, the Dan Levitard show with Stugatz made a musical that sold better on iTunes than his did. And um, yeah, we are we are going to be making taking big swings for them and helping them create a larger content presence. And we've just now arrived over the next couple of quarters. DraftKings is ready to throw rocket fuel on, on the mm -hmm. stuff that they have not yet done. I'll leave it to them, right? I can't, I can't tell you all the things they've got planned. That's their jurisdiction. But I can tell you that they decided that before we even get started, because we jump from ESPN and we have our audience, they believe by merely being the sales staff, on our audience that we took with us, ESPN gave us our intellectual property. We jumped from one day to the next into a totally free space. We thought that if we did that by ourselves, we would command that money if we just simply got a sales staff. They mm -hmm. have the sales staff that can sell to our audience. They will recoup their money immediately and then we will start building stuff quickly. Because I do Google before an interview, um, the article I read suggested that they're going to take your podcast right now and then distribute it on other uh, radio, other places, and basically sell against it. And so your job is to make the podcast, and then they're in charge of getting it out to people um, beyond just the regular podcast listeners, and then they're going to sell the ad. So I think I've got the You've got it right, but not many people do. People hear $50 million from DraftKings and don't understand how quickly they're going to recoup that. That will that will not be lost money for DraftKings. Like that, That's the starting point for DraftKings, and then they could go after that and invest resources in actually building us and whatever else they've got planned in terms of content. And that allows you to bring that team to, to Austin, et cetera. I'm curious what you think about the the influx of gambling money into sports in general. You know, not very long ago, John Skipper had a deal with DraftKings at ESPN, and it was going to be a big, huge thing. And, he, and Disney was going to invest in DraftKings, and Disney pulled out at the end because they didn't want to be associated with gambling. And now the new CEO stands up out loud and says, we want to be as close to this stuff as we can. Everyone is. Um as a as a as a consumer of sports and as a maker of sports content, what do you what do you make of all of this? Does it give you pause at all? I mean, obviously they are allowing you to do what you want to do, but if you separate Dan the business guy for a second from that, what do you think of that the influx of money? Well, tell me where it should give me pause. Are you talking about the moral conundrums that one faces every day these days with eating famous Amos cookies or and just basically every decision you have to make that is a moral one? What is it that you're asking me? Are you asking me about whether I'm concerned about the normalization of gambling? Well, that's one thing. And I just wrote a piece speculating out loud about, you know, we took gambling, which is which is addictive for some people. And we we've married it to phones, which are addictive to some people. And I'm wondering, even morality aside, whether Apple or Google one day is going to say, hey, we should we should just tap the brakes on this either for moral reasons or because we're afraid that people are going to get into trouble and it's going to come back to us. And or I'm also thinking about from a programming stance. Um, you know, it used to be that if you wanted gambling information, if you wanted to participate in sports gambling, you had to look outside of the mainstream. It wasn't brought to you. And now it's in your face, whether it's in the programming or certainly in the ads, and it's now fully baked in. And one thing I think about there is, you know, there's obviously a large audience that does like to gamble on sports. I've done it myself. But I wonder if we are going to end up sort of like political programming where 
Fox and MSNBC are programming for a real niche. And if you watch Fox, you think that they're programming for a lot of people. It's actually a fairly small number, but they then sort of become the way political news is disseminated. And I wonder if if eventually gambling just becomes so fully baked into sports that it's fully baked in and there's no way to separate it or whether you think it can still be separated. I think it goes without saying, I hope it goes without saying, if you followed my career, that I obviously don't want anyone to get addicted to gambling. I don't want any participation in the ruination of anyone's life because they don't know that there might be addictive harms in gambling. So put that over there. Like, obviously, that's not something that I want. Mm -hmm. And when getting into business with normalized gambling that has been, you know, the, the people who run sports will tell you that the NFL and the NBA signing off on the idea of it's okay to gamble and and getting into partnerships with these gambling companies, they've opened the door to a normalization that Europe has been less repressed about for a long time. But I can assure you that if you know anything about me and why or how I would follow my principles and my freedoms, anyone who is watching or listening to our content, they would not be saying these people are compromised because they've got an imprint of gambling all over where they are. We were all, as a show, doing some gambling in the shadows at ESPN that nobody knew about because it was a taboo thing. But most of our mm -hmm. listeners and most of the people in here have a familiarity with with gambling on games. It's part of the popularity. I mean, March Madness right now might as well be uniforms just running around on a court with no, just avatars, not even human beings in them because it exists as a gambling enterprise. I think under the table, ESPN, you know, I, I don't know how many billions of dollars illegally are gambled every year outside of this recent normalization. So you have to factor in all of these things when making moral decisions and you have to be discerning about how you present yourself. But I would just say that anybody watching or listening to us, that you see DraftKings imprint on us because they are the title sponsor. They believe in what it is that we're doing, but you will not see our content infected by gambling. Like we are not sitting here all the time going anywhere that gambling leads us unless it's already a place that we were because we were gambling on the games or that was the starting point of the interest. You know what I mean? Like we're not forcing any gambling content down anybody's throat. In fact, I'm wondering if people who see that we're title sponsored by DraftKings aren't wondering why would you give $50 million to those people if they're not actually doing gambling expertise talk and none of your gamblers are going to go to where they are in order to get their gambling mm -hmm. information because we're doing musicals. But same reason Bud Light or whomever would sponsor you, right? They just want to be attached to your brand. They want to be in front of people. That part makes per plenty of sense. And, but there's another element to this, right? So when making the decision, we jump from ESPN. It's a big, scary thing. It's the worldwide leader in sports. And we jump into the abyss and we're making a decision. Do we want to team up with a legacy media partner or do we want to be the legacy media partner? You have seen throughout the industry, right? More and more people, whether it's players, it, more and more people in sports are realizing that they have more power than they thought they had. And when we were negotiating with the freedom and we had a lot of legacy media interest, one of my choices that I had to make on whether or not we were going to do this and how we were going to do it is, do I take the $10 million in marketing money from Sirius XM that comes with some giant contract, but also put our listeners behind a paywall, make them pay for something that has been free? Do I 
Do I alienate our audience that way? Or do I do the even scarier thing of like, just fuck it, fuck it. We'll do it ourselves. And, and DraftKings has helped us do that because now we are not beholden to anybody. We're not handcuffed by anybody. We can make deals with anybody because we're a valuable thing that DraftKings is about to make more valuable because they're supporting it the way that you would want a sponsor to support something, which is here's your money. Go do your job. You've got freedom and flexibility, things that you had uh, less of at Disney and ESPN. We'll talk more about that. What are you um, missing from being part of the big conglomerate? What do you wish you could have back or build up? Or what are you day to day going, oh, yeah, we don't have that? Uh, there's very little I miss. I miss some of my friends who worked at ESPN because we were building this inside of the machine for a while. We were stripping down the walls, right? We were showing, if you're familiar with what we do as a show, from the inside of the machine, we were the anti-establishment thing. This is a great way to be the anti-establishment thing from inside the establishment. It's the best mm -hmm. way to do it. So we're stripping down the wall and showing you, oh, look, first take, the bait show. This is silly. These guys don't actually believe. They're just arguing. Arguing and what and, and we're just sort of spoofing all of it and so uh, among the things that i miss is an easy enemy right because corporate suits can can be an easy enemy and our show flourishes with an easy enemy howard stern did well with that for a long yes, time. yes of course and and you become less dangerous when you are your own boss and the audience liked when i bumped up against it and would get suspended and there would be sparks and it would be fun and it would be entertaining it seemed more dangerous uh my friends the my friends who work there that i just enjoyed laughing with and and it was really a, a loving, wonderful environment to to cook our stuff in. And then I would say the third thing, and I don't think there's anything other than those two things. The third very silly, empty thing is there is great value in the reach of somebody seeing you walk through uh, when they're walking through an airport and your face is the one over the television on the bar and the sound's not even up. They can't even hear you. But, they just know you exist. But your face is the one on the television, and now we exist in a podcast space. So basically, we've we've gone symbolically from what is the worldwide leader in sports, the biggest platform in sports. We have shrunk it down to, and now we exist inside your head. We're going to build the video part of it out. You saw that in South by Southwest. But as a we used to be the vibrant, most dangerous thing on the worldwide leader in sports platform. Yeah. And then we jump from that into, and now we exist in every person's head and headphones and, uh, you know, AirPods. You were, while you were at ESPN, you were watching the landscape change because not only was ESPN the, used to be the worldwide leader in sports, it was the only thing in sports, right? Unless you were watching on your local news broadcast that you were watching ESPN and Fox Sports came up and it didn't look like they were going to be serious. But over time, they, they have become somewhat of a competitor and there's stuff that didn't exist a few years ago and now is huge, right? Barstool and watching Bill Simmons create something. Pat McAfee, I did a panel with him at South by like six years ago and he was a fill-in for Deion Sanders and I, he just seemed like a guy who was nimble and now he's making a huge money podcasting. Did it help you sort of break up with ESPN knowing, oh, I can go do something now on my own and, and there are models for this? What's funny about my relationship and the history of me and ESPN is that I never wanted to work for a corporation, never wanted to work for Disney, never wanted to work for ESPN. 
I wanted to have my freedom, but I wanted to have something if I was going to leave that was more Miami than the thing that I already had. So I am the drive time radio host. I am a newspaper columnist in my market, and I am also the person who ESPN is using as a mercenary. So I have all of the platforms. What do I need? I need something. If you want me to work for a corporation, I need something that's more Miami than the Miami thing I already had. So John Skipper, who wants a Latin voice and wants diversity at the network, says, how about if we hire your dad? How about if we put him next to you on a TV show? How about if we have your brother do the art? How about if we put it on Miami Beach and they could see the ocean behind you? And so it's like, okay, I'm going to work there. I will work there. That is more Miami. So the person who never wanted to be at Disney gets there and then never expects to leave. Like everything was fine while Skipper was there. Everybody left me alone. None of my mm -hmm. fears about the corporation be breathing on my neck would be there. And then Skipper left and some of that stuff ended up changing and the discomforts of that. And I was no longer working for the man who hired me to do a certain job. Uh, the discomforts of that culminated with them uh, firing an employee of mine without telling me who was the son of a mentor of mine and best friend. And um, I was just hurt by that in a way that um, that couldn't be recovered from. So that's that's where we broke up. Yeah. And 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 you you alluded to this, but I mean, some of the some of the heads you were bumping it, you were bumping into Jimmy Pitaro, right, because he wanted to steer ESPN away from political commentary. Jamel Hill was an issue for Skipper while he was there. You became one for Pitaro because you mentioned Donald Trump uh, and he wanted to steer clear of that. Is there any way you could have kept your job at ESPN and, and found a way to accommodate sort of the Jimmy Pitaro era or was it never going to well, work? Well, you mentioned Pitaro and I did not because I always found Pitaro to be a very nice man, a human being. Uh, a, He's a very nice person. But it's not just that he was a nice man, right? Like, I don't know what he inherited, uh, what their focus group said about politics but i was never someone mm -hmm. who talked politics i was always somebody the person they hired was someone who talked race and maybe i'm being naive in separating those two things but it, there was a quaint time when i was hired before 2016 when those seemed to be two different things talking race and talking politics it, it's become vastly more overt than that but and yep. regardless we could say i'm naive we could say that, uh, that we could say that since ronald reagan or before or long before we could say that race has been intermixed with politics but i did not consider myself somebody who talked politics. So I, I, I'm offended as an exile and somebody who's been hired to be a voice for exiles, immigrants, others, minorities. Okay. I am a proud newspaper columnist who, as I've told you, like really believes journalistically in the idea of freedom at my, at my core. So you're going to rent my father's Hispanic voice to have a Hispanic television, but you think that buys mine? You think the renting of my father's voice buys my voice, that I'm going to sit out when the president of the country is telling people who don't look like him to go back to where they came from. I'm just, you don't know me if you think that I'm going to sit that out. And so... And I didn't know Pitaro at that point. I didn't have. I I knew we had a corporate policy, but I hadn't talked to anybody because we live in this swampland that was outside of ESPN's. You know, they just left us alone, and so I'm not yeah. sure he knew what he was inheriting. I don't know that he even knew who he was hiring or why I was hired. So when I said that on the air, I went to go meet with Jimmy Pitaro, 
And that was reported for whatever the reasons it was reported this way, that I was having a talking to from Jimmy Pataro in New York. I demanded that meeting to see if I could work for Jimmy Pataro because rebellious as I can be, I like to please my bosses. Like, yeah, you, you are, you've been working on ESPN. You're not that rebellious. You're, you're working within the structure. Correct. I, I don't believe myself to be incorrigible. I don't believe myself to be a recidivist. I, I believe myself to be someone who's going to fight for some things if, if some principles are going to get trampled. But I didn't go up there looking for a fight. I very much went up there to meet with him and just see if we could work it out. And we talked about it. And I said to myself, I believe that I can work for this man. And I did for uh, however long after that it was, a year and stuff. But he doesn't have his fingerprints all over the company. Like, there, you know how big those jobs are. Like, those, those guys are spending so much time. So he and I developed an interactions and we would talk. And I would, I would ask him for permission on stuff. But the stuff that happened wasn't between me and him. Like, that, that, the, the, the stuff that became impingements on our environment just be, just came with change, just in general came with change. I don't know if someone ordered it or anything else, or maybe they just wanted control over a show that they viewed as unruly, but I wasn't going to have anyone governing us except me. And so what, what, to whatever you've seen what's happened since then, right? Like, cause my agent told me a long time ago, this is what's going to happen at ESPN. He told me a long time ago, they're going to take five or six guys and make them the highest paid. And they are going to be guys, five or six guys. And they'll be whatever Herb street, Stephen A. Smith, Scott Van Pelt, Mike Greenberg. It'll be there. Mm -hmm. They're going to eliminate the middle class, especially people like you, Dan, who are going to be headaches. They're not going to want any of those. And then they're going to have a whole bunch of disposable parts as a business model, because a whole lot of people watch ESPN without the under understanding that ESPN is for games and games and games and everything else is an infomercial. Everything else is an infomercial that gets you to the games. The, the great secret about ESPN and its business model under Skipper and others was they used to have 120 million subscribers and highly questionable was a successful show in the afternoon that had 500,000 viewers. So 119 million point five people are paying for content they are not yep. watching. All of us are infomercials. Like everything that is the programming except for maybe first take and sports center is infomercials just to get you to the next game at ESPN. So now that you don't have an ESPN doesn't have 120 million, right? They're in 60 or 70 million, whatever the number is, it keeps shrinking. You don't have access to that platform we talked about. You have brought an audience with you. How do you think about keeping them and, and, and growing it? What are you bringing to them since they're not getting games from you and you're not on TVs in, in airports? What, why are they coming to you and, and how are you going to grow that audience? Well, DraftKings is going to help us over the next couple of years. And you and me will reconvene on this, okay? Because I am eager to talk to you about some of the things that I can't tell you about now because it's their business model and they're going to build out however it is that they're going to build it with their news releases and everything else the next two years. But what I would tell you is... In doing what we did, if you had stayed at the South by Southwest thing, you would have seen uh, tears in my eyes as I shook hand after hand and 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 took pictures with everybody because all of these people were thanking. I'll get choked up talking about it with you right now. All of these people kept coming. Like they drove from all over to be with us. And, you know, so many wonderful compliments. Like, thank you for being representation for me. I've never seen anybody like me on television too. Thank you for dragging us through an incredibly dark time. I lost my father. I was suffering. It was good to have laughter in my head. Just hugely complimentary things where people were thanking me. And my response each time, and it hard felt and genuine was 
No, thank you, because if I did not know that you were going to be there to catch us, that you would find us where we were, that you would be discerning enough and loyal enough to believe in what this thing is and how it cares about family, about its people, about making cool shit, um, the audience that we bring, I believe, is more loyal there than any you'll find in the history of the medium because they are discerning about the things our crew tries to represent. You, you brought your people with you, right? That's a get, not a given, but that's that's the premise well, of what you're doing. Uh, but I didn't know it would be a given. Like I I, yeah. I I assumed and hoped and prayed that it would be a given. I I hope that we could jump. I, I don't think people understand the amount of infrastructure that Disney would provide that we lost from one day to the other without ever leaving the ability to feed the addiction of you need three or four hours of this a day. You've gotten used to it. We have to keep, we can't disappear from one day to the next. We have to jump from here to here and believe that you will follow us. It has been difficult to grow the audience from there. It's plenty substantive as it is, but I believe the next two years are going to be spent with us now learning how to, you know, it's startup. It's just start yep. us. It's not just us being a startup, though. I know DraftKings isn't a startup, but doing this is start like making a business relationship with us to make content is something that they're also learning as well. And so together, I believe the next couple of years of this contract are going to be very fruitful for both of us in what represents growth for both of us. You got to build a thing as you go. Do you think, I mean, you're very much doing a radio show. You, you've got the setup we're now sort of used to where you've got your producers participating in the show. You can back and forth with them. Do you think about the difference between a radio show and a podcast or are they all one thing that is in audio? Oh, this is interesting, right? Because this is required evolution from me and Stu Gatz and the, you know, I our show, in order to age with grace, it has to be something that is evolving, growing, that is not formed and has stopped being intellectually curious. We are hiring young people, vibrant, different thinkers, uh, so that they can- You got my old office mate, Jess. Yes, so that, that's yeah. right. She's been she's been invaluable uh, to, yes, not just as a woman and, and a young person, but just a different voice that allows us to learn some things from, from young people and- and evolve with some with some grace. It's I am uh, invigorated by the thought of spending this last part of my career bringing young people through here. She made your old office made uh, mate Jessica made a gamble on the pirate ship uh, while we were just forming it. She left her job and her city and everything else because she's like, I I want to I want to be near the vibrancy that those guys have. This happened all the time at ESPN. People think that I was actively out there looking to. Uh, make Mina Kimes a star or Bomani Jones a star or Pablo Torre or Dominique Foxworth. They ended up gravitating toward I th our thing because they were just like, oh, what is that weird thing down there in Miami that gets to do uh, odd things that aren't arguing all day mm -hmm. about whether LeBron is better than Michael Jordan? And so it, they... I, I hope we lure more and more young people like that because I believe the culture of what it is that we have down here, uh, again, love and laughter. If, if you can help 
push people toward their dreams. That's the company I'm trying to build. We'll, we'll see if we can do it, right? Because I, I roll my eyes too at the idea of corporation or company with a soul, but I know what I'm trying to build here. I know what I'm about and I know what the rest of my, what I want the rest of my career to look like. And what I want it to be is generous of spirit so that, so that people who work for us get the things that they want. I hope you did not see me rolling my eyes because that must have been a computer glitch because I was not. Well, but I, I, I know how it can sound, though. Like, it must. I mean, you talk to business people all the time. Like, when I say company with a soul, like, I, I, I you have to know who. Yes. We, yeah, right? Like, when, when you pay attention to what it is, though, that we are, you will know that this is very much my family. I don't have kids. Like, I've got guys with us here who have had kids on our watch who haven't worked other places, really. This is the only professional experience that they've had in the market or in, in the medium. And so I didn't even know this was happening, Peter. Honest to God, I didn't know. I was just coming in and doing my job. And next thing I know, oh, we've been here for 17 years with the same people. And I've, you know, I've been the professional father to these people the same way that skipper and and one of my mentors gary honig who now works for metal arc the same way that they were my professional fathers when i was coming up and i needed an advocate and they gave me magazine jobs and magazine stories because they wanted they wanted badly the latin perspective last question if you are dan lebitar but you're starting out in 2022 and you want to be involved in sports media it sounds appealing to you what do you do? Do you go try to work at some version of the Miami Herald? Do you TikTok? Do you podcast by yourself and hope someone finds you? It's a great question because everybody, I have doctors and lawyers and people who are wildly successful who maybe aren't doing the thing that they were meant to do, uh, who have a great deal of envy of like, how does he get to make his living that way? What, what could I have done differently to make the living that way? Because everybody wants to just give their sports opinions on pardon the interruption. Like they, they want to go straight from, they don't want to cover the $18, uh, you know, an article sewage meetings that I was covering when I was, you know, writing for the river cities Gazette. They just want to start at the point of like, well, how do I get to give my sports opinions on television? Which, by the way, some people get to do now. You can. Digital does allow some people to at least try to make that leap in a way you could never have done. Before. But that is a meritocracy that did not exist when I was coming up. It's a democratization of content that didn't exist before. If you're good enough, you can now develop your own platform. But that wasn't something that existed back then. And mm -hmm. in fact... I'm too old to know how sophisticated you need to be to manage the TikTok space or to be a YouTube influencer. I've fallen out of the demo that makes things popular with young people. So when people ask me that question, my answer has always been, keep in mind, writing is sort of, newspaper writing has died on my watch. So like when I, I wouldn't advise anybody to get into newspaper writing right now. It seems like a terrible career choice. But what I've always said to people is make sure to read everything you can read and ask all the questions that you can of all of the people that you know in these industries to find all the ingredients you need to know what it is that you want. I don't know that I can give very good advice, though, to, to a young person right now who wants to get into this space because my path isn't like other paths. Like I, what's my path? My path is I wrote for newspapers and then a radio show developed and then ESPN decided to borrow the credibility of newspapers to make its sports departments stronger by making 30 for 30s that were easy to make because 
the columnists had a lot of opinions and were free to sit down and talk for hours about something and it can be turned into documentaries. That's the pipeline that dragged me through. It's totally different now. I don't even know if I'm qualified anymore, Peter, to tell young people how to go get the things they want in this industry, but I'm building the company that is going to give them the the slalom route, some of them, to get to it. You tied that up very nicely at the end. You are more than just a hood ornament. Dan Levitard, I wish you well. We will uh, follow up and see how it's going down the line. Uh, thank you for the interest. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Dan. That was fun. In a minute, we'll talk to Grant Wall. But first, a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Something extraordinary has happened in international soccer. It's a direct result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Has not gotten much attention in the U.S. because it didn't happen in the U.S., but I wanted to flag it for our listeners. Here to talk about it with me is Grant Wall, a long, long-time soccer journalist for Sports Illustrated, now working on his own at grantwall.com. Welcome, Grant. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. I've been trying to think about an American analogy about what's happening to Chelsea, the London soccer club, and its owner, Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich. Here's my here's my attempt. It would be like if the U.S. government wanted to punish Jerry Jones, who owns the Dallas Cowboys, by limiting his ability to make money from the team, interfering with the team's operations, and preventing him from selling the team. Do I, do I have that analogy right? I think you do, actually, because Jerry Jones is probably an equivalent to, to Roman Abramovich over here in the U.S., I would even go farther and say the U.K. government has completely prevented Roman Abramovich from making any money at all off Chelsea. And that goes down to the smallest things like selling team merchandise. You can't go to the team store. It's not open. Selling tickets. Every little aspect of anything that could have brought Roman Abramovich money from Chelsea has been cut off. So let's zoom out a bit for, let's assume that most of my, my listeners are not uh, international soccer fans, international football fans. Let's describe what Chelsea is, first of all, in, in the international football. Well, Chelsea is the current European champion. They won the UEFA Champions League last year. They've won the English Premier League, their domestic league, many times since Roman Abramovich bought, bought the team in 2003 and really changed the face of European football by doing so. Because Chelsea before that was a somewhat successful team run by a guy named Ken Bates, and they never had really won the Premier League or threatened to come close to winning the Premier League. They're in the upper part of the league, but 
They weren't a big trophy-winning team, and when this oligarch, Roman Abramovich, bought the team in 2003, he invested insane amounts of money into the team, into buying players, into hiring a coach named Jose Mourinho, and they instantly started winning the Premier League. Eventually, they started winning the European uh, Champions League competition, and it really heralded a new uh, stage in European football where you know, really, really wealthy individuals or even later states uh, would buy teams. And, uh, and Chelsea took that to a new level. Uh, the Qataris, the state, eventually bought the team in Paris, PSG, uh, Abu Dhabi, uh, bought Manchester City. And these are some of the best teams in the world right now. Saudi Arabia has just bought a team. I want to I want to talk about about sort of what this money has meant for for international soccer. But let's uh, let's continue to do some table setting. Um, who is Roman Abramovich? He is uh, an oligarch. He is a guy who made a tremendous amount of money with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and ended up making sort of a deal with Vladimir Putin that sort of allowed him to continue being an oligarch. And that involved paying various entities off. And, and there's a lot of accusations out there about, you know, including from the UK government about what Roman Abramovich did to maintain uh, his status in Russia and then be able to have such a big influence on buying Chelsea and living the life he has lived on yachts and in, in various places over the years. So he's not just a billionaire, he is a Russian oligarch billionaire, and and you're speaking a little bit carefully about him. He's quite litigious, particularly in the UK, uh, when people do bring up his ties to Putin. But it is safe to say that you cannot be a Russian oligarch without the assent of Vladimir Putin, and many, including the UK government, have alleged that there's much more of a direct tie between Abramovich and, and Putin. And, and up until this year... It seemed like everyone was sort of okay with that arrangement, that people in, in international soccer in England were happy to have Abramovich spending billions on the team. That has now changed. So explain what the, what the UK government did really just a couple of weeks ago, maybe even less than that. Well, after the invasion by Russia of Ukraine, the UK government has really frozen all of the assets of Roman Abramovich in the UK and of other, about a half dozen other Russian oligarchs. And there's a tremendous amount of Russian money in London in particular, as there is in New York and in other cities. And clearly, uh, what was sort of allowed to be the case before by the UK government, by the Premier League with Chelsea in terms of Abramovich's ownership, that's no longer the case. And so... Certainly, there are some questions and, and people saying, well, if you're not going to allow the Russians, why are you going to allow the Saudis to buy Newcastle United, another club in England? But uh, in terms of Russia right now, everything went toxic. And so the UK government took action. Roman Abramovich tried to anticipate that by announcing uh, that he was going to put Chelsea in a stewardship through the club's charity. That didn't work out. Then he was going to try to hurriedly sell the club before the sanctions came, and that didn't happen in time. And now the government of the UK is going to basically oversee the sale of Chelsea to a new owner. So Chelsea is still playing. They're playing uh, this afternoon. We're recording it before they play. What are the practical effects of, of this freeze right now on the team and then, and then longer term? 
Well, in terms of uh, the UK government, they've limited the amount of money that Chelsea can spend on travel of the team to games. And so they have a game in Europe against Lille in France, and they're not going to be able to travel in the luxury that they're probably accustomed to traveling in. And it, there's a lot of things, large and small, and people in the soccer world are obviously joking about, well, you know, the coach Thomas Tuchel is going to have to drive a bus or something. I don't mm -hmm. think it's going to be that extreme, but there are going to be changes there. And Chelsea is not able to sell new tickets to games moving forward. And so that's going to you know, hurt them financially, but it's also just going to hurt them, I think, probably in terms of atmosphere at the stadium. They may have to play some empty stadium games. And, and so we're going to see changes here. And then it's very much up in the air about, uh, and dependent on what happens with the sale of the team, of once this season is over, what's going to happen to the Chelsea players? Are they still going to want to be there? Are they still going to uh, make the money that they made before? Because Roman Abramovich spent so much money on Chelsea salaries that they were operating at a huge loss. And there was $1.5 billion in debt that Chelsea was in to Roman Abramovich, who said that he was going to forgive that debt when the sale takes place. So you know, that is not a worry that a huge amount of debt for Chelsea fans, for the club. But there's a lot that's up in the air right now and uncertain with Chelsea. Right. So there's questions about whether they can re-sign players, whether uh, in, in international soccer you buy players from other teams in the transfer market. In theory, they can't do that right now. Who is likely to end up owning Chelsea? What If it's if it's not presumably not going to be a Russian oligarch or a uh, Middle Eastern petrostate, who is likely to, to own this team? Well, we've seen some reports already about interested individuals, and one of them is an American named Todd Bowley, who is a part owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers, among other teams. And he's had a lot of interest in buying Chelsea over the years. Roman Abramovich has not sold to him in the past. Now he wants to buy the club. And most experts think that Chelsea is going to be sold for far less than it would have been sold before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And yet... We're also starting to see reports of many other interested buyers, including a Saudi group that, you know, any Saudi group is going to have ties to the government there. And that could be a test of how stringent the UK is going to be moving forward. You hear a lot of people over there saying, well, now we're going to be really strict about what kind of owners we let into the Premier League. And this might be an initial test of that because they did just let Saudi government tied ownership into the Premier League very recently with Newcastle. And so there's a lot that remains to be seen here and even how the sale is going to take place and what role the UK government will have in it. Yeah, it's one of the extraordinary things about international soccer over the last few years is a run-of-the-mill billionaire, um, and there are American billionaires like the Glazers own Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they own Manchester United, they're considered to be at a disadvantage because they're not as rich as the oligarchs or, you know, the, the Saudis or, or Qatar who have basically unlimited funds. And like you said, there's speculation that maybe that era of soccer is coming to an end. Um, this is just guessing. But do you think that happens? Do you think the money flows out and, and there's, there's more moderate spending international soccer? You know, on a case-by-case -case basis, I think we will see maybe less spending from some certain clubs, like Chelsea. If Chelsea's bought by an American like Todd Bowley, I would expect that he would run Chelsea 
in a similar way to the way the Liverpool owners, who are also American, have run Liverpool, which is they've been very successful, very strategic, very data-oriented. These are the guys who own the Boston Red Sox. And yet they're not as wealthy as the owners of Manchester City, and, and they don't have that kind of money. And so if you're a Chelsea fan, I think your best case scenario would be something like that. You're no, you're no longer going to have an owner who spends, 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 and isn't afraid to lose more than a billion dollars on the team. And European soccer is not a salary-capped system, unlike most American professional sports. And so... You could spend an unlimited amount of money, yeah. You, you really can. And so Manchester City is leading the Premier League right now, and they can spend a lot of money from Abu Dhabi, and they've been very good at, at how they've spent it, but they put together this super team. And so I'm curious to see where Chelsea goes from here, but I also don't think this is necessarily the end of an era, and we're seeing if there's continued interest from Saudi groups to to buy Chelsea or other clubs or other Middle Eastern outfits or whomever. I mean, like we have seen the Chinese investment decrease in recent years as Chinese group bought Inter in Italy, the current Italian champion, and they're really struggling and may have to sell that club pretty soon. So there's a real ebb and flow here, but I still think there's always going to be extremely wealthy groups, often tied to nation states, often in the Middle East, who will continue to want to buy big European soccer teams. And I don't know if I necessarily see that stopping anytime soon. Is there any version where where any of this has an effect on soccer's overall popularity, on the ravenous audience for it on television and now on streaming and the amount of money people are willing to pay for those for those streaming and, and TV rights? Well, about a year ago, there was so much attention focused around this announcement of a European Super League that only lived for two days before they scrapped the idea because fans in so many countries, including England, rebelled against it. But it was essentially 15 clubs, 15 of the very biggest clubs in Europe, announcing they were breaking away from their domestic leagues and the Champions League and starting their own Super League. And they would play games every week, and they would let five teams a year in based on merit. But the 15 teams, these big ones, were always going to be in the Super League. And it was this fundamental revolution in European football if it had gone through. But the reasons for the formation of the Super League were pretty clear because these big clubs, they they want to have as much in terms of revenue as possible. They want mm-hmm. to be able to control the revenue better. They want to know what is coming in. And feel like they could have gotten much more out of that, and it would have been much more of a global appeal. And while the Super League died very quickly last year, the reasons for it to be proposed still exist. There's a lot of inequality in European football between the haves and the have-nots. That gap continues to widen. And there was a reason that American banks were part of the Super League thing, because we could still see that happen at some point and maybe packaged in a in a smarter way and sold in a smarter way. But I don't think the Super League idea is dead yet. And I think that has a connection to all of what we're talking about here. Because if you're Liverpool and you don't have quite the money that Manchester City or PSG do... You're only owned by a mere billionaire. 
Uh, these are the folks <laughs> who are on the Red Sox. Um, and 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 you want to sort of uh, make sure that you can you can keep pace with the Abramoviches of the world that you 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 tie up with them. Grant, you were like I said, a longtime uh, soccer uh, journalist at Sports Illustrated. As long as I remember reading about soccer, you were writing about it there. You left in 2020, uh, unceremoniously fired by by. By I, I don't think it's the I guess it is still the current ownership, uh, the newest version of Sports Illustrated ownership. You are now um, sub-stacking on your own. How's that going? I'm really enjoying it. You know, it's something I started six months ago. And Substack has a thing that they do with some prominent writers where they will agree to support you for a year as you build a paid subscriber base, and then the guaranteed support goes away after one year. But by then, you hope to have built that subscriber base enough for it to be sustainable. And so that part is new to me, the the sort of direct to consumer part for my writing, but it's going well. And then from a content side, I negotiated a travel budget uh, that's allowed me to be on site for every US men's national team World Cup qualifier. And there's three more coming up there. And, uh, and I've done basically magazine-style stories around the world. I just got back from a trip to Doha ahead of the World Cup this year. I was in Venice for a story on the, the soccer club there, and I was in Barcelona for a story. We're pretty familiar with the Substack world uh, on this podcast, but we're less familiar with Substack journalists who actually leave their house and go report <laughs> on things. But you're able to do that. Well, I am, and that's, that's what I do best. And so I wanted to be able to continue doing that. And I realize that's a little different from what most Substack writers are doing, but what I found is is that I'm really nimble. I'm my own boss. I can decide when and where to go for a story. And when I go to Europe or the Middle East, as I did to, to Qatar recently, I'm the one who approves that trip and and can turn around the stories pretty quickly. And um, I'm actually still working with my favorite editor from Sports Illustrated is editing my work uh, on my Substack, a guy named Mark Moravik. And so um, what I'm finding is it's, it's tremendously enjoyable um, and fulfilling from a, from a work perspective, but I'm also able to produce even more than I did during my Sports Illustrated days because I'm sort of not dealing with the bureaucracy of trying to you know, take the time to pitch a, a story of, please send me to Europe for this soccer story and going through the different layers of all of it. So you were headed to, I guess, Mexico City in a, in a week for the U.S. game? Yeah. So I'm on site for all all 14 World Cup qualifiers, uh, Mexico-USA coming up. And these are three huge games for the U.S. to finish up qualifying for this World Cup after having missed out four years ago, which was the, the biggest failure in U.S. soccer history. And so, uh, you know, chances are they're going to make it here. But I think the fans have a little PTSD. And so they're yeah. uh, just hoping they can get this over the line. I, I am rooting for them, and I'm rooting for you. So good luck with your endeavors. Thank you, Grant. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Grant Wall. Thanks again to Dan Lebitar. Thanks again to Jelani and Travis for producing and editing the show, and to sponsors for bringing it to you guys for free. And thanks to you guys for listening and texting and flagging me down at South by. That was fun. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, 
wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.